In February 2020, the UCD Centre for Ethics and Public Life hosted a series of public lectures at Mali, each looking at ethical questions that impact personal, public and professional spheres. The lectures featured prominent researchers in ethics from University College Dublin and were held in Mali's old physics theatre. During the Age of Enlightenment, new types of criticisms of idleness began to appear. Philosophers opposed idleness not on the traditional ground that it would require others to work. Rather, it prevented each of us from realising our talents and skills. Idlers were supposedly akin to savages and barbarians. In this lecture, delivered on the 4th of February 2020, Professor Brian O'Connor looks at some of the strange and biased arguments against idleness found among these philosophers. Brian O'Connor is full professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. He is the author of Idleness, a philosophical essay published by Princeton in 2018, together with a number of other monographs and edited volumes on modern German philosophy. And thank you all for coming here this afternoon. It's really lovely to see so many, and hopefully I won't do anything to deter you from coming back to what will certainly be far more interesting lectures in the remaining part of the series. And just to throw in a completely subjective bit of gratitude, it's always a great privilege for any member of the UCD community to have the chance to teach in this famous room. So I am going to talk today about work and idleness, and there are any number of things you could could say about this topic, but obviously we know that in the traditional division of things, the, the, on the side of the good is work. Work is where uh, virtue and honour are to be found, and at the side of degeneracy and general immorality is idleness. I want to explore how this opposition works and give a little bit of favour to the uh, disreputable side of that relationship. First thing, though, is to give you a sense of which version, of which sense of the word idleness or the phenomenon of idleness I want to discuss. There are many senses, so I'm simply going to kind of corral a few of them uh, or one central set of related senses and say this is what we need to think about. Well. I think the oddness I'm talking about is something we all know about. Unless we have an absolutely uh, inextinguishable desire for work and activity. We enjoy at times not being productive and being detached from systems of production. In life, most of the time, these experiences are momentary, but we know what they look like in principle, even if we only occasionally enjoy them. So it's not contributing anything to the general good or to a life project or anything beyond the moment of one's particular uh, pleasure. And it has to be distinguished, it isn't always in the literature, from leisure. Leisure has a very specific meaning. Indeed, there's a very long-standing philosophical literature on leisure reaching all the way back to Aristotle, perhaps earlier. And leisure has a purpose. Certainly it looks a little bit like idleness because it sees itself as elevated above the tawdry business of the world of productivity and sweat and toil. Um, but at the same time, it's not without a purpose. There can be many reasons for it. The, the great Roman 
moralists, many of them distinguished politicians themselves, saw leisure as an opportunity to detach oneself from politics in order to become more reflective about it. But in our day, we have leisure as a feature of the workplace. Uh, leisure isn't merely something we demand, it's actually a right, and, and sometimes it's an obligation. Employers become extremely worried about employees who refuse to take their annual vacation entitlements. And why is that? Because leisure is part of the system of, if you like, uh, production. You recharge the batteries, come back fresher, and are ready to contribute to the place that pays you all the better. So leisure clearly has a purpose, whether it be in the loftier sense that the Romans uh, conceived it or in our current work practices. And it's not literally doing nothing, idly vegetating. Could be many things, but it, it's not a, a, a condition of stasis or just literal wasting away and degeneration. So if, if it is to be indexed to any, anything at all, it's simply a detachment from productivity, which isn't, of course, identical to doing nothing and idly vegetating. And it's a directionless, satisfying kind of freedom from purpose. That's important, that you're not geared up uh, towards a particular end, something you're trying to achieve or accomplish, a life's aim or, a, or, a, or a, even a medium-term uh, objective. So these, these are what look to me like relatively innocent preferences in a life. But philosophy has been extremely unhappy with them from the beginning. So let's go through some of the ideas that philosophers have, if you like, developed in order to cut the ground from under any legitimacy to the idea of idleness. But before going to the philosophers, let's go back even earlier to the ambivalence towards idleness in one of Western culture's founding myths. Well, we know about Edenic bliss with Adam and Eve, sort of given a garden to work in without effort. All they have to do is tend the bountiful garden that's been created for them. They can take what they want. Interestingly, you could say there's no prestige in what they do. It's not an accomplishment of, a, of Adam and Eve that they have this beautiful garden. Uh, their creator lays on what you might call a low maintenance garden for them to, to do as little as possible within. So it is as close to uh, idleness as uh, one might find in this great myth, doing little, uh, tending to the bountiful garden in minimal ways, a garden that's already set up and fruitful. But we know about the so-called original disobedience that brings an end to that happy arrangement. And the punishment, uh, you might say rather disproportionate punishment that Adam and Eve receive is to be cast into a space where there is no, if you like, automatic fertility. All work from then on in the garden will be toil. The, gar the, the ground they fi find will be barren, but they will have to make the best of it. And there are all kinds of other miseries thrown in, like labor pains, rather, a rather sadistic bit of uh, circumspection. In any case, this is the beginning of toil. 
Now, what do we think about that? Is this, is this good? Is this the beginning of the virtue of work that God has cast humanity into a state of toil? Well, importantly, I think that's not the case. Human beings are not morally obliged to work following expulsion. They simply have to, to survive. In fact, work is a punishment. There's nothing fulfilling in it. There's no reward to be gained with it other than survival. So there's no moral uh, necessity to work, simply physical, existential necessity. It's just worth pointing this out because you'll, you'll, many of you will be aware of a very influential text in the history of sociology by Max Weber on the Protestant work ethic. And undoubtedly, to this day, you find many, uh, if you like, evangelical ideologues identifying numerous passages in the Bible and other holy texts that justify a particular way of life. What's interesting, though, is we go back to this very, very early myth. The story about work is very ambiguous, ambivalent, I should say. And there's, in a sense, the most beguiling portrait of idle bliss before the expulsion. There are a number of long-standing and mainstream criticisms of idleness. These are not necessarily philosophical. They're rooted in our, our broad-based moral tradition where we draw on religion, law, and indeed philosophy at times. The first familiar mainstream criticism of idleness we could call the unfairness worry, which is that it's not fair that some people can idle whilst others don't. If we're going to have idleness, it'll always have to depend on a system of unfairness because stuff needs to get done and for others to have the benefits of idleness, there will be some poor devils whose job it is to work on their behalves. Now, that is, that is, that is merely an, un, an in-principle worry. We could say that what, what's really at stake there is not idleness, but perhaps the idea that some people might selfishly identify themselves as deserving of a happier life, of an easier life than others, as not the same thing as a promotion of idleness. But nevertheless, that persists. And among the ideologies where work is celebrated, you know, in various kinds of 19th century socialism, for example, uh, idlers tend to be perceived rather hostilely. Perhaps the most famous worry about idleness of all, though, is, it, is that it leads to degeneracy of various kinds. Now, you think about that, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail in a moment. There is, what does that depend on? What does that image or that worry depend on? depends on the idea that the human being is a rather delicate entity that can easily fall apart without discipline. And idleness is the absence of discipline and hence a condition for degeneracy. And there is, there is much uh, criticism of this kind of degeneracy or idleness-based degeneracy uh, throughout our uh, history. What I just very briefly note is that there was a, once upon a time a worry, for example, that monks and others like them living in holy uh, orders, living in religious communities, who got a bit fed up with the rigorous 
discipline of work where they were fed up with the hours of praying and the hours of toiling the fields and so on, in a sense, step back. Uh, but what often happened is then they begin to fall apart. Something that they called uh, asedia was present as a kind of a boredom, a kind of depression. And the only cure for it was to coerce these people back to prayer and back to work. This seemed to confirm the worry that without a rigorous system, uh, a, a rigorous discipline, um, the human being was liable to fall apart. And then you have these images. The reason why Hogarth is there is to illustrate this last point is you've got the, 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 the familiar figure of the rake, the, the, the person who falls into the hands of idlers in the big cities who can only go one way when idle, when they abandon the path of virtue, which is all about discipline, uh, rigorous self-control, and so on. Idleness is the, the word frequently associated with the, the scenes of Hogarth's uh, characters. Well, they're not idle in the sense of vegetating, of course. They're doing quite a lot, none of which might be uh, uh, morally uh, mainstream. We can put it that way. Um, but they have no purpose beyond the moment in which they find themselves. So let me talk about a very uh, significant text which gives us I, I, what I take to be, if you like, the authoritative view on idleness as the gateway to degeneracy. And it comes from this astonishing text by Robert Burton called The Anatomy of Melancholy, written in 1621. It's an extraordinary book which would, wouldn't fit into any genre from our times. It's a, it's a work of classical learning, drawing on whatever he could find in the underdeveloped field of medicine as it was, uh, and morals from the, the Romans in particular. And he was worried about melancholy, which isn't quite the same as what we mean by depression, but is, is near enough. And he believed that idleness provided the most alarming and, and, if you like, most successful conditions for the onset of melancholy. So he says, for the, uh, at the conclusion of this vast book, he writes, for those who wish to avoid the torments of melancholy, be not solitary, be not idle. So what's, what's the problem? Well, again, there's no greater cause of melancholy than idleness. That's his spelling, not mine. And here is a, a kind of a, a statement of what the mechanism is. He says, the idle mind macerates and vexeth itself with cares, griefs, false fears, discontents, and suspicions. It tortures and preys upon his own bowels and is never at rest. So what does he mean by the idle mind? Well, it's a mind that doesn't really have anything to occupy it with. And he has various suggestions about the ways in which a mind might occupy itself, uh, gendered, as you, as you would certainly expect uh, for a man of his times. He reckons it's a good thing for the young men to get back to their studies uh, and for the young women to get back to their needlework. Whatever, whatever it is, they need to keep themselves preoccupied because if they allow themselves to be idle, they open up a space for a destructive rumination on their own condition. The mind loses all shape. 
Uh, it entertains the most wretched uh, experiences of anxiety and fear and unhappiness. This then is for me uh, an important statement at a particular time in European culture where the worry about idleness is still very much one about the risk of degeneracy. It's, and that's very much in line with thinking that it preceded it for hundreds of years. And of course that worry hasn't gone away. You know, in our own times, even in the 20th century, there were those who thought that idleness could, be, uh, could only be destructive because the absence of discipline led to degeneracy of various kinds. At the time of enlightenment, we see something different and a bit more uh, recognizable from our own times, begin to enter into the discussion of what the problems of idleness might be. Far less significant, indeed rarely mentioned among the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, is the risk of degeneracy. Rather, there are other disadvantages to idleness, and these disadvantages turn out to be extremely damaging to individuals and society as a whole, but not because of degeneracy, as I shall now outline. Let's have a look at some features of the Enlightenment. And of course, not only can we disagree about what the Enlightenment means, some historians will even disagree that there was ever something we call the Enlightenment. But I think we can agree there was, and these are relatively uncontroversial features. The Enlightenment has different features, perhaps from country to country, uh, but uh, the German Enlightenment has many of these features. Confidence in human progress. Human progress was never a concept, a concept that the medievals had, for example. They never thought about progress or things are getting better. Not because they weren't getting better, which might, might have been the case or not. They just didn't think about history as a feature of human societies. Uh, things didn't really change. That was neither a, a dismal fact nor a reassuring fact. It was just a fact. But the Enlightenment begins to gather up, I suppose, a sense that there have been uh, developments that allow our current times to compare favorably with times gone by. And we may believe that this can continue if governed correctly, if human beings apply themselves to the task of progress correctly. So human progress is a major theme for the first time at this point in our history which, you know, roughly you can say the end of the uh, 18th century and for many decades afterwards, and perhaps uh, flowing into the 20th century until history uh, intervenes in a very concrete way. So progress is made good, is made by good human decision-making. So it doesn't happen just like that. It's not providential, which is what certain philosophers of history would have said in an earlier time, it's not that God peeps in, uh, tweaks things, and ensures a good outcome. It's made good by human decision, made by good human decision-making, not by providential intervention. And how do we make good decisions? We make good decisions by relying on reason, not standing authority, as to say, by the, those institutions or individuals who, whom we're obliged to obey, and we don't follow convention or nature. We reason our way forwards. And 
really significant for the story of work and idleness that we need to look at is that the inner worth of each one of us as human beings is realized only when we take on the burden or responsible or duty of achieving progress. And that's not to say we all have to see ourselves as situated within a society that generally needs to progress. In other words, we don't always have to take progress as a political act, but even to see ourselves as works that can be improved is to take on the project of progress. Again, you, because we take these ideas for granted now, it is surprising to think that these ideas are not found much earlier than this time, that each one of us can see ourselves as a site of possible progress, and of course, collectively, that amounts to societal progress. So let me take you through two significant philosophers who'd give us a story about how this progress might be made, why it needs to be made, and how idleness is a threat to this progress. So are these two towering figures in the history of uh, Western philosophy, and no doubt German philosophy, Immanuel Kant and Georg Hegel. They both, in their own way, offer what we would call enlightenment critics, criticisms of idleness. And that's intended so that they can promote human potential. Again, this is an important thing, that human potential is what is endangered when idleness is prevalent. That's very different from the degeneracy idea. The degeneracy idea says, it's really kind of a, it's a, it's a, kind of a pessimistic thesis, which is, if we idle, the, the, main, the cost we pay is that we fall to pieces. Whereas this one says, if we idle, we miss out on the opportunity to promote our own potential. It's, it's, extremely, it's an extremely different em emphasis on what the, 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 the evils of idleness are. The first is to be avoided because the consequences are negative, whereas the second, more modern form, says idleness is to be avoided because there is a positive outcome that we will fail to grasp if we indulge it. And one of the ways in which they encourage us to think about what's so terrible about idleness is by offering unsympathetic imagery of idle peoples. They invoke that imagery almost to flatter ourselves into thinking, well, we don't want to be like them. It's a very, it's a very new age uh, for Europeans, this, because they're only really getting something like uh, a proper look at the world outside Europe. And they do so, for the most part, with highly prejudiced eyes. They measure everything they find. There are some notable mavericks, but they tend to view everything they see outside their own world as some inferior version of their own. They have a certain kind of um, respect for the courtly cultures of the East, but everywhere else alarms them. And they find parts of the world, these are, these are reports relayed back to Europe in various popular magazines and popular books, uh, of people living in what, what, what are almost Edenic circumstances. Vast, fertile plains, and, and horrifyingly, no agriculture. It seems, like, it seems like an unimaginable waste. And not only are they not bothering with agriculture, they're not 
by European prejudices, even, even bothering with their own self-realization. So that thinking feeds into even the works of these fine minds, this tendency to think that there's something awful going on in the world where idleness is the norm. And really, none of us would want to be like that, would we? So let's have a look first then at these rational agents that we're all supposed to be. Rational agents, those of us who have grown up in the ideal conditions of enlightenment, organize our lives according to reasons. We do things uh, knowing why we do them and knowing where those uh, actions will lead. We understand the complexity of social life. We understand how our actions act, uh, re have a reaction among others. We know why we should and shouldn't act because we have a sense of the complexity of the space within our actions take place. And we seek to find a fulfilling place within it. And it's far more characteristic than you might think to see that many thinkers, not just Kant and Hegel, but many other thinkers, very prominently among Scottish Enlightenment figures like Smith and Ferguson, think that the way of finding a fulfilling place within our complex social lives is to make ourselves useful and productive. That's what a rational agent does. An irrational agent has no interest in the complexity of social life or how they might belong to it. So they, as rational agents, appreciate their real human value. This distinguishes them from the unthinking peoples of supposedly simpler places who just live their happy lives without really knowing what's going on. That's the, that's the image they have in mind. Essentially, the prejudice is that people from those other places are uh, rather tragically close to nature. They live like happy creatures, like sheep, like uh, the wild animals, and so on, who, uh, who survive, who indeed may find some version of happiness, but don't have any sense of themselves as valuable creatures. But the rational agent in this world takes their value to be central to what motivates them to act at all. And the rational agent could never truly want to be idle. The rational agent could never truly want to be idle because it precludes any possibility of finding a fulfilling place of usefulness and productivity, which is what is, in the end, truly valuable. Now, that might sound to some of you like just a piece of dogma, an assertion, a linking together of what's socially useful with high-sounding philosophical principles. So it's, it's good that some people make themselves useful. It's good that there's productivity. But does that mean it is something that the rational agent who can value their lives in special ways ought to do? Couldn't we just see usefulness and productivity as necessary evils? You know, there are lots of things we human beings who are among the frailest of all animals need. Uh, supplying them is a, is, a, is a necessity of survival. Is it any more than that? Well, it sounds sometimes a little dogmatic to say, there is something more to it. There's something not only useful in itself, but something rational in it. So I'm going to try to tease that out a little more by looking at the objections. So let, let's walk through some of the major claims of Kant's moral philosophy to see how he gets to that. This is a, 
one of the most influential and controversial moral uh, theories ever put forward. He believes that genuine morality consists in willing that our acts uh, are always in accordance with laws. So I only, want to, I only want to act in a way that would be in accordance with a law. And so it would be different from hazy things like untested opinion, habit, or passion. Those are kind of sub-lawful sub motivations. If I'm just acting out of an opinion that's not grounded in anything that I've really thought about, it's not like acting out of a law where I know what the parameters of action should be. And obviously habit is unthinking and passion is ex exceptionally unthinking. And one of the, what, what, how you know you're acting out, out of a law and not just out of a habit is that you think that the way you would act would apply to all moral actors in similar circumstances. Not only is this what I should do, but everyone should do this in similar circumstances. So there's, if you like, the, um, the, the voidance of idiosyncrasy here. Idiosyncrasy is when you say, I do this for my own reasons and it has no bearing on how anyone else acts. I couldn't even imagine why it should. Instead, you take your action to be guided by a law in that you too are committed to following this law that you would also recommend to everyone else. It's somewhat, somehow, universal. Now, with this uh, fine theory in mind, in one of Kant's books, he imaginatively challenges an idler and effectively wants to see this idler as somebody who has no interest in doing anything with his life and asks him to defend himself. How can he defend such a wretched life? Why won't the idler cultivate a talent that, as Kant puts it, would make him a human being useful for all sorts of purposes? Why won't he do that? Well, Kant believes the idler, if he is fundamentally rational, will be struck dumb the minute he tries to defend himself. There's no proper defense of idleness. The idler can never come up with a good reason because the kind of things that would count as reasons are exactly the things that idleness has no space for. Idleness has no space for the idea that you should take yourself to be a valuable contributor among others. So Kant does concede that human communities could subsist in states of near idleness. For example, these people, as portrayed by Gauguin, of course, are very similar, oddly enough, to the example Kant has in mind. So they subsist. Their lives are not imperiled by idleness. They've got some minimal form of work that keeps them going, blessed, no doubt, with a, a wonderful climate and an abundant uh, uh, flora, but uh, this is not an attractive image for rational beings, according to Kant. It would be terrible to live like them, he says, because as with the South Sea Islanders, the human being should let his talons rust and be concerned with devoting his life merely to idleness, amusement, procreation, in a word, to enjoyment. Uh, but it's interesting there, letting his talents rust. There's a question here about the idea of a talent that must be realized. And 
No rational being could allow that to happen. Furthermore, talents aren't just, you know, your ability to do whatever, do somersaults all day long. The real talents are those that are useful to the society in which you live. So a rational agent, Kant thinks, is going to be rather alarmed by the idea that they could find themselves at the level of these clearly, utterly miserable and unappealing South Sea Islanders and prefer to identify as rational agents acting under laws and making themselves generally serviceable to the community as a whole. Hegel has a story, different one, but amounting to the same uh, <coughs> outlawing, again, of, of idleness. Hegel is famous for, as, as a philosopher who emphasizes the, the, that individuals are primarily communal or social, that they're not unlike the story told by liberal philosophy, particularly in Britain uh, at an earlier period, fully formed individuals who de then decide to get together to make a good society. Rather, they emerge from a society that's already there which is not to say they can't have some role in improving it, but they don't uh, come together as fully formed individuals who um, th then decide what society is. Society, in a sense, precedes each one of us. He believes that rational self-realization involves, among other things, this is just one strand of his thought, making ourselves useful to others. So this is what you'd expect in Hegel, really, because he is a a communal thinker, and the image is, is already of a certain kind of cohesive social reality where each one of us potentially has a role to play. And in his, his famous philosophy of right, 1821, he talks about how this can be brought about by society. We need practical education. And practical education, he says, through work consists in the self-perpetuating need and habit of being occupied in one way or another, in the limitation of one's activity to suit both the nature of the material in question and, in particular, the arbitrary will of others, in a habit acquired through this discipline. You might say that that is a, a philosophically jargon-esque way of capturing the idea that we need to have the work ethic instilled in us. The work ethic is something that uh, gives us this sense that we should make ourselves busy, but busy in meaningful ways. And because we live in a community of needs, there will always be ways in which we can make ourselves busy. So as he says, we limit the development of our skills uh, to suit the nature of the material in question. So again, the skill has to be relevant to what's possible in your situation. And furthermore, that skill must be geared towards the will of others as he says, the arbitrary will of others, what others want. So you need to be form, you, you need to be open to forming yourself into a person who can respond to the situation in which you find yourself, the potential or scope of the situation in which you find yourself to act in certain ways and in accordance with the will and need of others. And to make this a habit. So it's not something that you do begrudgingly or reluctantly as needs arise. This is a disposition in which you're effectively always switched on and looking for the opportunity to work. We saw the South Sea Islanders portrayed in completely unconvincingly negative ways by Kant. Uh, 
Hegel has his own uh, exotic villains. Uh, the educated or developed man contrasts with what he calls the dull and sol solitary brooding of the lazy barbarian. Now, it's not clear who Hegel has in mind, but I decided to guess. Uh, this, this, this individual who does look pretty solitary and dull and brooding. And he's very much, he's very, the illustration is chosen because Hegel has a number of ideas of what the, 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 the life of the barbarian is. The barbarian has many faults compared to our own highly developed social uh, persons. He doesn't participate in socially validated work practices. He's off in some wild situation uh, doing whatever it is that in some semi-instinctual um, way strikes him as the thing he needs to do. So there's no rationality, there's no thought along the lines that structure a good society there um, in, in the barbarian. And he's withdrawn from the world, solitary brooding. So again, Hegel has an image of human beings as highly uh, disposed towards social integration, social uh, interaction. That's what we are. But the poor old barbarian is withdrawn from the world and effectively uh, uh, unable to be anything of any recognizable value as a consequence. He works only when necessary for his continuing physical existence. How different that is from people educated or given practical education as we saw in the previous slide. Those with practical education, again, are always disposed towards working. They want to find things to do. They have been trained to find idleness an uncomfortable experience. But the, the barbarian is naturally idle and only works when he has to, presumably when he gets hungry or cold or whatever the, the rather uh, animal level of his needs might be. So the civilized person is always ready for work. And it's interesting, just again, uh, uh, not to go into any other philosopher really, but. This is, a, this is a, a, a sort of a popular image of, uh, of the savage in 19th century thought as somebody who really, in a bad way, only works for their continuing physical existence. That is Karl Marx's view as well. And he turns the table on society by saying, well, work conditions are so miserable that they're like savage, like savagery. Uh, people only work in our world because they uh, can find only opportunity for survival in it. Now, of course, Marx is one of the theorists who believes in the end that work can be immensely fulfilling, but in the world of capitalism and the production of commodities in, in horrific factories, all you have is the kind of productivity of a savage. The worker is doing it merely to survive. There is no sense of a wider world in what they're doing. So these are, these are images that you could say, are the, this and Kant's one, are there to, if you like, morally embarrass the sophisticated Westerner into thinking, uh, well, we, didn't, we really wouldn't like to be like that bunch. Uh, we're, we're better than that. Um, that's part of the, the rhetoric, you know, the old principle of rhetoric 
of course, is always to have a, 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 an image that works on your feelings and to weave it in to your, to your logic as well. So you see then, you could say in our time, what we're witnessing more is the ongoing influence of enlightenment criticisms of idleness. They've largely displaced old-fashioned, the original criticisms of idleness. The original criticisms of idleness, as I mentioned, are that it leads to degeneracy and is therefore to be avoided on that ground alone. But the, if you like, the post-enlightenment criticism of idleness is that it is a deprivation of opportunity. And that's because we value usefulness in a way that was inconceivable once upon a time. The idea of being useful it would be unintelligible to, uh, to, to, to millennia of uh, civilizations prior to the Enlightenment. Of course, you could be useful in a wretched way like a slave, but not in this socially positive way. It's also led to this other thing, I think, that's very distinctive, about the anxiety of wasting our lives. When you think about that, if anyone was to, which I'm actually not, but if anyone was to go about proselytizing for idleness, many people would say, well, I understand the attractions. We work too much. We experience too much stress. We don't have enough time to do interesting things. But if we took too much idleness, wouldn't we waste our lives? It's an interesting thing. What does it mean to waste a life? You understand what it's, what, what it's like to waste food. You know, there's that stuff there that didn't get used ever. But we know it was there. It's hard to understand precisely what it is within ourselves that was wasted. After all, uh, there's none of us without at least two talents and developing one. Would that not amount to wasting the other and so forth? These are, these are difficult ways of thinking, but they seem to be uh, reasons to worry about idleness, wasting our lives. And then there's the thing that I, I suppose I didn't fully foreground in looking at Kant and Hegel, but it's implicit there. The need to validate our talents through the approval of others. So the social gaze, as other philosophers put, put it, is something that really motivates us. And again, these thoughts are distinctive to worries about idleness in our times. To make the, the, the risk of idleness is in many ways, as Hegel had captured it, of making ourselves invisible, of being very little different, different in principle to the barbarian who's solitary and brooding and detached from things. And those are reasons why idleness in our times has a distinctive kind of uh, disvalue, something that I think represents a big shift from the times of the worry about degeneracy. So that is my sketch for now, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>